and welcome to this week's episode from A Lancashire Lass. However you listen to this podcast, whether it is in the car on the way to or from work, whether you've got your headphones in and you're going on a walk, or if you listen to it out loud, I'm really glad to have you here and glad that you're enjoying the podcasts. Don't forget to hit subscribe or follow so you can keep up to date with when each new episode is out. Joining me today is Rachel Dorr, a postgraduate lecturer in the School of Health Sciences at the University of Liverpool, where I used to go, and Laura Groom, who is an advanced physiotherapy practitioner at A&E and Aintree Hospital, which is part of the Liverpool University Foundation Hospital Trusts. They're on today because we're talking about National Apprenticeship Week, which starts next week, and we're going to be talking about the different types of apprenticeships that are available, some that you might not assume, some that aren't for young people when you just leave college, and the importance of these apprenticeships within the NHS and the healthcare sort of industry and jobs. So Rachel, why don't you start by sort of saying a bit about the apprenticeships and sort of what National Apprenticeship Week is? Okay, so just um, from our perspective really, um, currently the one of the biggest groups of postgraduate students we have in the, the School of Health Sciences um, is a, a group of apprentices and they are currently on an advanced clinical practice apprenticeship programme. Um, and it's it's relatively new. Um, our our first intake of students was two years ago, February twenty nineteen, and we were one of the first uh, programs in in the area. I think the earliest anyone started was about September twenty eighteen. So it's still very new, um, and there's not many people quite reached the end yet. Um, but the difference, I suppose, that's um, sort of worth noting compared to what people usually think of when they think of an apprentice is that the people that are on our programme are already very highly qualified and experienced uh, members of healthcare staff. Um, We have um, students or apprentices um, from all across um, healthcare. So we have lots of nurses from both mental and physical health disciplines. We have physiotherapists, occupational therapists, uh, therapy radiographers, a social worker, a dietitian. So um basically any sort of non-medical medical medical, uh, professions um can partake in in the uh, apprenticeship um if their employer thinks it's appropriate so i think most of the time when thinking about apprenticeships we think of young school leavers perhaps going into their first job training um what this type of program has allowed is people who are already in, in employment um and experienced but it's actually upskilling and it's kind of um, building on their existing skills uh, to develop their positions in healthcare. So coming up uh, National Apprenticeship Week, it's actually um, sort of themed building the future. Um, and this really is building the future workforce in, in the NHS. And um, how do people apply if like, they are interested in these types of apprenticeships? Is it through the University of Liverpool website themselves so for um, an advanced practice um, apprenticeship um, it's uh, all apprenticeships are what are called a a tripartite agreement so it has to be between 
the education provider, the employer and the apprentice themselves. So for advanced practice ones, um, it's usually um, something that perhaps the um, potential student, potential apprentice agrees with their employer that this is a kind of appropriate training pathway. Um, so it's, each uh, employer will have an apprenticeship lead and it might be something that the individual wants to discuss uh, you know, with their immediate line manager or with their apprenticeship leader in, in their trust uh, as it is in healthcare. And then they will um, sort of have agreements with different um, uh, education providers of which uh, University of Liverpool is one. So we have uh, apprentices from uh, the Liverpool University Foundation Trust, um, we have uh, apprentices from the Christie in Manchester, from uh, Wirral Hospitals and Wirral Community and Merseycare. So all of those employers have agreements with the University of Liverpool, but they may also with other uh, higher education providers. Uh, but if people want to find out just a bit more about the types of courses, then you can look at um, apprenticeships.gov. Uh, um, and that kind of will kind of lead you into looking at uh, different types of apprenticeships and what's available. Or you can look at the individual um, uh, education providers. So for Liverpool, it's um, the advanced clinical practitioner on the uh, University of, of Liverpool webpage. You can just Google that <laughs> and it'll come up. Uh, so there's, there's an awful lot of information out there and there are different ways of accessing uh, the apprenticeships. But um, it's a, it is um, you know, something that's agreed with um, the employer. That, that, that's the key thing. Apprentices are people that are already employed and their employers will, will um, sort of uh, approve them to, to go on a programme, if you like, um, and it'll be specific to their role development. That's really interesting. I must admit, like, when you sort of flagged up about these different apprenticeships, I had no idea that there was any other than, like, going off to after college instead of, like, the university routes. It's really interesting. Um, so just to bring in Laura, so you're in your third year of this apprenticeship. You said you're in the first cohort at Liverpool Uni. What's it sort of been like, the journey and what you've been learning and things? Yeah, so I um, started the programme, um, as Rachel said, one of the first cohorts back in February 2019. Um, I was approached by my employer um, to see if I was interested in taking part in the apprenticeship programme, um, which would really give me some of the evidence to sort of show how I would be working at an advanced level and also have, have some of the opportunities to gain some new skills. Um, for me doing the apprenticeship programme, uh, it's been a really great opportunity because it's been fully funded, um, which is quite rare when you want to do sort of postgraduate learning. And I've been given the time to be able to do it as well. So every Wednesday is my study day. Um, when I'm not in university, I'm, I do something what's called off the job training which has really helped me to go and spend some time with other clinicians um, working in sort of a similar area that I would be working with and, and gaining some experience of how they would be working. Um, so for me, um, one of the biggest things um, for taking part in the apprenticeship is that additional skill set. Um, so I've been able to successfully complete my non-medical prescribing, um, which has allowed me to add another sort of string to my bow if you like um, and I've just completed a module in regard to image interpretation so the fundamentals of looking at imaging so my role within a and &E, I'm a physio um, and I specialize in musculoskeletal injuries with be that slips trips falls or back pain 
Um, so all these are really uh, really vital additional skills that have helped me in my journey as an advanced practitioner, because sometimes we're doing things that aren't routinely what a what would I guess what would normally be seen as a physio role. So people think of physios um, and physios are um, working in all sorts of areas um, within healthcare, um, out in the community and within the hospital. Um, and it's common that, you know, we've seen physios, we, we like to get people moving, we like to get people up and about, and we like to help and get people back onto their journey, their road to gaining full fitness. Um, me as a physio within the front door, I come right at that beginning of that journey. Um, so when they presented with their accident and as a physio with advanced skills, it really allows me to sort of assess that patient holistically. Yeah. So I can do I can do jobs of sort of my other colleagues, so the medics or the um, uh, emergency nurse practitioners, the advanced nurse practitioners within A and E. Um, but I can also bring kind of a physio aspect to it um, as well. I think the apprenticeship program has been really good because it has got those other um, healthcare professionals on them, and it's been really um, helpful to understand and gain an insight into where other clinicians work. Um, how they work and how they will be using their sort of advanced practice skills as an advanced practitioner. Some of some of the um, my um, peers and colleagues on the advanced uh, the uh, uh, apprenticeship program, I honestly I've, I've never sort of had much dealing with them. So uh, the mental health nurses, um, that is some uh, you know I've never had a pla I never had a placement as a student within mental health. I um, haven't experienced a mental health setting, but I think it's really opened up some positive conversations about how other people work. And, you know, we've, we've been able to kind of troubleshoot and um, have some very interesting conversations, which I don't think you would get if it was just a standalone physiotherapy apprenticeship yeah. with just physios. Um, you know, there's um, Rachel mentioned there's occupational therapists and um, podiatrists. Um, and, you know, we've, we've really all worked together um, to gain an understanding how each each one of us are a, are a spoke of the wheel, if you like, and how we all fit together. Yeah. So what like what sets you apart in terms of? So you were saying about the additional additional skills that you've been learning. What would you say sets you apart from someone who maybe goes to uni, goes to physiotherapy, gets a job, works up the ranks, if you will, and then you who's sort of probably done that, and then this apprenticeship as well. Is it those further skills you mentioned that sort of sets you apart from those other people? Yeah, so I think for me, um, as my front role in a and &E, I am able to order investigations. So I can order x-rays, uh, MRIs, CT investigations, uh, which physios wouldn't routinely um, all do. Some, some of the sort of more advanced physios in outpatients would look at that, but not all physios will routinely order investigations. Um, as I just mentioned, I gained my medical prescribing, so I can now help people with medication. So that's um, pain relief medication. Um, and again, not all physios would be doing um, prescribing. Um, so yeah, it's given me those sorts of advanced skills that just yeah. give me additional skills as a physio to be able to um, manage that patient um, without the need to go and ask for, say, a, a medical colleague, a doctor, um, one of the nurses. Um, I, I'm independent. Um, I can take that journey. I can take that patient through that journey 
independently by myself. So just to pick up on what Laura was saying there, um, the advanced clinical practice is it's, it's something that's been around for a lot of years, but only kind of truly got a sort of official definition about um, about three years ago to in 2017 when um, uh, a, um, a sort of definition and a, a framework was actually published. Prior to that, it's something that's kind of grown up quite organically. Um, and there have been lots and lots of different types of roles um, that are classed as advanced clinical practice, but with a lot of variability. So there's quite a big drive at the moment for kind of um, streamlining a little bit the definition and sort of defining the roles so that people and the public can understand what an advanced clinical practitioner is. So advanced clinical practitioners can be, as we said, um, across multiple different um, professions so you can have an advanced clinical practitioner that is a physio or is a nurse or is a pharmacist or a paramedic um, and the thing that, that kind of um, you know sets them apart as, as, as you're asking your question really is they're all working at an advanced level which is beyond kind of um, you know the, the sort of qualification level so mm -hmm. they will all have some extended skills um, which might kind of take some from, um, you know, from the medical skill set or what have you, like prescribing, like ordering and interpreting investigations. Um, and, and as Laura said, it's all about being able to manage a patient journey as effectively as possible. So where, wherever possible, being able to take that patient from the moment they kind of pitch up at the hospital or in the primary care setting and manage their journey and, and sort of um, you know sort of address all of their needs um, without necessarily having to um, you know sort of um, you know go, go, go to the medic or what have you I mean um, as part of that though it's recognizing when you know that patient does need to um, see someone else and, and needs that re referral on and again that's part of the role is being able to refer on appropriately so um, but advanced clinical practitioners are really um, filling a lot of gaps, I suppose, aren't they, in the workforce at the moment. So where there's a massive um, uh, shortage of GPs at the moment, there's an increasing number of uh, ACPs in primary care helping to um, increase appointments and manage um, sort of perhaps more routine um, situations in primary care. Like in A&E, there's, there's a massive number of ACPs coming through. And again, they're kind of taking um you know some of the um patients that that pitch up that can be managed um you know sort of from, from that point of view so so you'll find advanced clinical practitioners now in every aspect of healthcare so from primary care to tertiary care and you know everywhere in between really so um watch this space you'll see a lot more coming over the years no that's really interesting i think it's also interesting that like the university of liverpool sort of caught on to that back in 2018, 2019. Um, yeah, and, and we're really fortunate. I mean, lot, lot, lots of, um, you know, higher education institutions in the region are offering advanced clinical practitioner courses, which is great, you know, locally, there, there's, you know, a lot of providers and they'll have, you know, sort of relationships with different trusts and things. Uh, I suppose our USP in, in Liverpool is that um, as undergraduates, we have um, six different healthcare um courses we've got nursing physio ot and um, diagnostic and therapeutic radiography and orthoptics so as postgraduates we can draw from all of that expertise as well so as laura said probably one of our say our sort of unique points is that we do get this really broad range of um 
professions and there's a lot of interprofessional learning it's quite a strong emphasis from uh, from undergraduate through to postgraduate and we try and sort of build those relationships which i think is really beneficial in um, then taking out to sort of gain that understanding i mean i must admit since i've, I've been i started as a lecturer um when the course started like day one as the first set of students pitched up so did i and um I've learned so much about the different professions that we've had through, like Laura was saying, with the, the mental health nurses, just, you know, jobs that you just didn't know existed in healthcare and different roles and stuff. It's, it's really fascinating. So there's a lot to learn from from one another as well. So what was your journey getting to um, become a, a lecturer? I know you were like a physio, but and why the University of Liverpool? Well, I am completely institutionalised, I always say. So I trained at the University of Liverpool, graduated back in 2000, so quite a long time ago now. Uh, I did actually leave Liverpool for a couple of years, worked in a couple of other large hospitals, and I came back um, and worked in the Royal Liverpool Hospital and Broad Green Trust for about 18 years. Uh, so I did the usual physio thing. Physios normally start their career as a, a basic grade, doing rotations through all the different areas. Um, and then I specialised in musculoskeletal outpatients, which is where I first met Laura a good few years ago now. Um, and then I went into a quite a specialist role uh, myself about about eight years, eight, nine years ago now. I went into a specialist research post, which was sort of focusing in shoulder surgery and particularly shoulder joint replacement. And as part of that, I actually completed the master's degree in um, advanced practice, advanced practice in healthcare, which is sort of um, it still runs now. It's kind of very similar to the apprenticeship program, but I did it not as an apprentice, just mm -hmm. as um, uh, a sort of uh, different fund funding mechanism. Um, and then, yeah, I've always enjoyed education and teaching. So uh, a couple of years ago, this post came up at university. So I kind of knew the course a bit, having done it myself and I've always stayed in touch with the university. So I started off part time and I was doing it alongside my research post and then uh, about 18 months ago, I went full time uh, at, at the university. So I still keep a, a, an honorary contract with the, the hospital and I still try and do some clinical work when I can as well, because I like to see patients and see people outside of the university, although yeah. as I say, I'm quite institutionalised. But, but I think it's really important as well that, you know, it, it's really healthy for us to keep that clinical contact and to understand yeah. what's going on as well. So. Um, so it's nice to be able to stay in touch uh, on both sides of the fence. Yeah, and to keep like learning and, as you said, like seeing the patients, and that's good to have sort of both aspects. aspects. Yeah, def definitely, definitely. And I think it's helpful with just because all of our students are working full time in the NHS, I think it's helpful to understand a bit of, you know, about what's what's happening out there. I mean, um, uh, Broad, Green, uh, Broad Green and the Royal and Aintree underwent a merger or still still undergoing a merger procedure, aren't they? Uh, which is why it's now Liverpool University Foundation Trust. And that's had, you know, it was all kind of going before the pandemic kicked in. And that was having massive implications for staff working in those hospitals, um, just completely changing ways of working and so on. And so just having a little bit of an understanding of how that was um working and or wasn't working and and was influencing how people worked so just by sort of still you know have it be, being within within the, the trust a little bit i think it's quite helpful um see Does what's going on, on 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 the ground floor is the hospital 
nearest uni. I can't remember what it's called. That's the Royal the... Liverpool, yeah. So the one across the road from the uni. <laughs> yeah. Is it like being used now? Oh, the new build. So the, the so interesting that the the new royal development as was very uh, publicly, you know, had a massive delay, didn't it? When the the, the Carillion problems and so forth, and uh, there were lots of delays in getting it going. Um, but during the pandemic, they did manage to open one or two wards to act as kind of nightingale wards, essentially. Um, so to to kind of help with the the massive number of patients that were coming in and. And I think it was used as sort of like a step down ward for COVID patients and so on. Um, I don't think that's open at the moment, whether it may open again to deal with the numbers at the moment. I'm not 100% sure, but but it has been used, but it's not properly been opened yet. So it's it's been a bit of a, a yeah, a, a sort of colossal, uh, uh, you know, sort of difficulty getting that, that going, unfortunately. There was but, a documentary um, about it. I remember watching, I think, with some uni friends and they were, it was saying how like there's someone who's always going around turning the taps on to make sure that there's not that bacteria or that bug that builds up in the wall. Yeah, yeah. So although it's not open to the public, they still have to maintain it and, yeah. and keep it going. You know, because the building's there. So it's yeah, it's, it's it's a big thing. But I guess a lot of stuff's been put on hold in terms of the actually getting it going because of the pandemic. It's not been like top priority. Uh, you know, continuing the the building work and stuff. So How it'll that get there. As a lecturer in the pandemic because i know as a as a student in the pandemic it's been slightly frustrating with it all online but i appreciate you might actually be you'll be face to face won't you because you're classed as a so no our, our, the vast majority of our postgrad modules um aren't sort of clinical in in the respect of having to teach clinical skills and stuff mm -hmm. um so a lot of it's theoretical so um the most of it has been done remotely so so basically before lockdown a week or two before lockdown last year um we basically kind of got right everyone's got to leave the building and work from home mm -hmm. so everything we had planned and normally we'd be very face to face um you know in the classroom and what have you we'd ne never did any online teaching prior to that it was like right everything's got to be um pivoted to uh, online learning um so i had to kind of work out how to teach online which i'd never done before which was uh, interesting <laughs> um and then of course we've not been back so literally not stepped foot in the building since then so had to redesign all of our teaching and everything to um to make it um, accessible online. Um, the university's changed its, um, it's called its virtual learning environment as well. So we've had to move everything from one system to another at the same time, which actually has probably been helpful because it's better for yeah. for that. Really, it's been a bit of an effort, but it's better. So, so yeah, everything's gone from um, from face to face to online for us, which is been a challenge but we've learned a lot of things that will definitely actually help us in future so and i think some of the students have found it really really difficult because they're just not used to online learning and it is, it is challenging some have actually really enjoyed it because it's say you know some of our students are coming from quite a distance and it saves them having to drive and park at the university which we all know can be a bit of a nightmare so um so pros and cons but it's been difficult for the students um as i say because all of our students are working pretty much full time the vast majority of them um so some of the trusts um at the beginning of the pandemic the lockdown last year just kind of said right no study leave it's on hold uh, all the all the apprentices might have to take a break in learning some were given the option so 
the, probably the most challenging thing for us has just been managing students coming and going at different times and mm -hmm. just trying to support support them because rather than every you know they started as one cohort all kind of at the same stage now we've got students that have come and gone and all at different stages so it's hard quite hard to keep track of who's doing what and uh, say what support they need but i don't think we've had the toughest uh, um you know things to deal with in the pandemic and uh, i think those in the hospitals on the front line have certainly uh, had a lot more to deal with than we have so uh, we we'll just kind yeah. of take, so take Barbara, what we can. you've been in a and e in Aintree when this when covid's been here as it still is very much here how's how's that been sort of you have had such a different experience to it than than most people and like so for me i'm shielding and was shielding so it's sort of I've just seen it on the news. I've not been anywhere, but you've actually been there. How's how's it been? Yeah, so I think um, it's been sort of a, rather a roller coaster ride. Um, I think it's it's been a lot about learning as we go along. Mm -hmm. um, I think yeah, as Rachel said, the first wave that we had, um, all our study leave was completely stopped. So um, that was stopped back in sort of March, April time. I think it was um, because you know it. it I don't think any of us could have actually balanced working full time and studying at the same time. It's been emotionally and physically draining. Um, you know, you're not only um, a colleague to people in work, your family members. So, you know, it's juggling family life, work life, student life. Um, and so, yeah, it, it was kind of that, that break in learning, I think was the right thing to do because I don't think I could have done it. And I think my, probably peers would probably have felt the same um so then it was kind of decided back in august september time that um we would look at restarting uh it, we were given the option as to whether we felt we could restart um or whether we wanted a further break from the course um and that was kind of down to sort of personal situations really i think as to you know your own personal circumstances your work circumstances um I personally felt that I could probably return back to my studies. I didn't really want to delay it any further. Mm -hmm. um, we've come so far. Um, I wanted to keep trying to plod on. But, you know, the university have been sort of supportive to say that, you know, if that those um, opinions change, then, you know, they would be able to support, support us. Because I think it's, it's important that we're open as to how we are managing work. Um, COVID has sort of changed the way we all work. Um, so I actually helped um, within A&E &E, um, by, I was actually moved out of A&E um, during the first wave. So we took all our minor injury patients and ambulatory back pain patients. So patients that presented to A&E with back pain, but walked in, um, we got them out of A&E as quickly as we could um, and saw them in fracture clinic which is just one of the clinics sort of alongside A&E um, &E up the corridor, if you like. Um, so my part, although I wasn't kind of within A&E seeing the COVID patients, um, you know, I played my part by helping to get those patients that we could take out of A&E out of A&E. Um, and, you know, we said, again, you know, people still had their falls at home. People still presented with their um sort of aches and pains if you like not not as much during the first um wave but it was a way that we could um, still see those patients effectively but not at risk to them either um i think it's been difficult obviously with staffing you know people staffing levels have, have continuously gone up and down um 
dependent on depend on who's in I guess you know people that have, that have been off um, isolating people that have been off unwell and um, people that have been off for other reasons so it's trying just to support everybody through it um, and I guess by now like the hospitals at the moment are overwhelmed and it's it's things like the patients who you'd see it's important that there's still the, the facilities and the teams to see them as well because like you said people don't stop falling people don't stop getting these pains so it's important that people if they do have those problems still come but still have the availability to come which i guess is why we're in the lockdown so the nhs doesn't get overwhelmed and people can still see people like yourselves yeah so um one of the um biggest arms of my role in a and is to see the spinal patients so patients that um come in with back pain or leg pain um there's a condition called chordoquina syndrome um which is a medical emergency um, and you know needs uh, emergency treatment if it is confirmed to be chordoquina and I've had two chordoquina patients through the lockdown period so they still need that access and they still need that onward treatment as as Rachel um, said earlier you know it's being able to recognize how far you can take that patient on their journey before then you need to refer them on to their appropriate resources um, and I think it's really been kind of looking at how we can change the way we work to keep people safe to keep staff safe um, and how we can sort of get through COVID together you know I've got a lot of colleagues that work out in outpatients that have done sort of video and telephone consultations they are still picking up patients with unknown cancers um, they are still picking up patients with significant findings on investigations that the GP have done um, and they still need that that ongoing care and it's about you know COVID is very relevant it is very um, in the forefront but we still have these other patients in the background that still need that access and still need that management but I think it's how we manage it um, patients have been scared to come to the hospital and I think that has been a big thing. And I think that's why sometimes delays have happened in diagnoses. Um, but, you know, we have to you have to manage that patient when they come with their symptoms that they've got. And if we can manage them with the, the best resources that are available at that time. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I guess like you have been vaccinated now, so there's a bit more. There's a bit more hope, I'd say, now that all these vaccines are coming through, and especially with you key workers, that you'll hopefully feel a bit more protected against it. Yeah, yeah. It, um, I think, you know, having the vaccine, having the vaccine programme rolled out, um, I, I have been very lucky um, in that, you know, I've been able to be one of the first people that have had my vaccine. Um, and there was no question whether I would or wouldn't have it. You know, as soon as it was available, I, I've had it because I, I, I want to play my part um you know we still um we're still very much using all our ppe um to the highest level that we can even though you know we have all been vaccinated because obviously you know there's still the ongoing research around sort of the transmission even if you have or, or haven't had your vaccine you know i want to protect myself i want to protect my staff i want to protect the staff that i work with um, and i want to protect my family you know when i come home I want to make sure that I'm not a reason for that spread or or that kind of transmission of anything. But yeah, it's really exciting that the vaccine has started. Um, and I think 
hopefully that has given us a little glimmer of hope that there is that light at the end of that distant tunnel. Yeah, definitely. I think I had mine last week, so I thought that was like me doing my part, not as much as you, but ever so slightly. Uh, so the yeah, so the apprenticeship that these guys are doing, the advanced clinical practitioner, it's still a, a full master's program. So they, they graduate with um, a master's, uh, an MSc, and uh, and also with the apprenticeship. Um, so it's 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 a great opportunity, as Laura said. It's it's a way of funding. Um, education and upskilling staff um, and as I say you know it works it's working in in healthcare and it's not just at this level actually there are some courses now that are kind of pre-registration so for helping for example uh, healthcare assistants become qualified nurses and 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 so on um, so there are n numerous different programs um, and in different industries as, as well so um, the, the reason why it's kind of increasing is that um, the government introduced something called an apprenticeship levy a few years ago that all employers of a certain size have to pay and then they can sort of draw back their, their investment into this apprenticeship levy by um, funding training for their staff through apprenticeship programmes. So um, so that, that's how it works. Um, so yeah so uh it's it's you know all, all credit to the apprentices it's hard work it's not not just um you know turning up they're still doing a job they've still got stuff to do on top of that but they do take away a qualification at the end of it great well thanks for coming on today and um yeah if anyone's interested in these apprenticeships or anything then like rachel said look on the government's website or the university of liverpool's website they're really 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 good uni <laughs> being an alumni myself um, so yeah, thanks for coming on today. Thank you, Lucy. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Tune in every Friday to a new episode straight from a Lancashire Lass. To keep up to date with all things from a Lancashire Lass, follow on Facebook and Instagram at from a Lancashire Lass.